Last time uh, I was here, we talked about uh, the diseases that are almost exclusive to women. And today, we're going to talk, to, uh, talk about the two major cancers that are almost exclusive to men. And these are prostate cancer and testicular cancer. And this, would really, this is really my summary at the beginning, and then I'll sort of go through this in rather greater detail. Prostate cancer is an incredibly common cancer, uh, and very large numbers of men uh, in this audience and who watch this will have it now, will have had it in the past, or will go on to get it. And you will all know people with prostate cancer. This is uh, a very common disease. Uh, most people who have it will not die of it, and in fact, many of them will not need treatment at all. Uh, and it is possible to live with it if it is, cannot be removed as a chronic disease in a very large number of cases. But of course, that's not true for everybody. And I'm going to go through uh, this in much more detail than the second of cancer we'll talk about today, which is testicular cancer. This, by contrast, and I've illustrated this with the typical ages with two of uh, Rembrandt's self-portraits, is a disease almost exclusively of young men. Uh, it's uh, uh, very uncommon, not hugely uncommon, but very uncommon. Uh, it can almost always be cured either by surgery or relatively limited treatment. And the outcomes of this cancer are very good uh, indeed in the great majority of cases. So these are the two we will consider today. And as with all the lectures uh, in this series, uh, I'm really imagining when giving this talk someone who knows someone who's recently had a diagnosis or who wants to know some information because, of course, every person is different, but the basics are, are, of the path through cancer diagnosis and treatment uh, are broadly the same with uh, important variations. So if we look at... Let's uh, start off with how common uh, prostate cancer is. If we look at older men who die of an unrelated cause, so these are not people who've died of prostate cancer but have died for some other reason, might be a heart attack or a stroke or some other cause, uh, and if we look at the oldest of those, people who die in their 90s, and you look for cells in their prostate, 50 to 60% of them will have cancer cells, which well, they probably were not aware of, and they've died with it but not of it. So by the time you get up to that age, actually the majority of men will have cancerous cells from the prostate. And then if you look at another study, which was a study of male organ donors, and organ donors who are incredibly generous people, are people often who've had a road traffic accident or some other major disaster, again, unrelated to uh, treatment. Uh, what they found was that uh, less than 1% of men under 50 had any cancer cells uh, that were detected. Uh, but it then went up, and I'll, I won't read those out, but from around 25% in people in their 50s uh, through to just about uh, 50% uh, for people in their 70s. So that's, that's the number of people who actually have the cells if you look for them. But to be clear, most of these people will not, in fact, or many of them will not have been aware of the fact that prostate cancer does not cause them any problems at all. This talk will be about those cancers which are big enough to cause symptoms or big enough to be detected and need treatment. So this is a subset of these, uh, and these are the people who are seen to have prostate cancer. And many of these, uh, to, to reinforce this point, uh, it will cause no symptoms, even though they've been detected, uh, and may require no treatment or very minimal treatment. But there is uh, an important uh, and unfortunate minority. So let's just go through some of the data. Uh, these, this is the age, typically, of cancer uh, in the UK. And I'm using a lot of data from Cancer Research UK, uh, which comes from various sources, but they, they present it uh, very clearly. Uh, and this is the age 0 up to 40, and as you can see, virtually no cancers at all. And then it starts to rise uh, in people's 50s, peaking in the late 70s. That's, that is the, the pattern of, of disease uh, as it is detected. It is, by some distance, the commonest cancer of men, or commonest significant cancer of men, uh, in the UK. There are uh, just under 50,000 cases a year uh, registered. Um, uh, it's around a quarter of all the cancers that are detected in men, uh, and you can see the relative importance of it uh, compared to others. Lung cancer, which we'll talk about uh, in the next talk, uh, is the second most common in men. And therefore, if you think about it in terms of a man's lifetime risk, 
uh, roughly 16% of men will go on to uh, get a diagnosis of a cancer um, uh, if you look at people in their 60s uh, and 70s. Um, if you look over time, there has been an apparent change in cancer incidence, but it's basically it's gone up in younger people and down in older people, and that's because of largely because of earlier detection, not actually because there has been a real increase in the cancer itself. Now, as I said at the beginning, the great majority of men who have this cancer will not die of it. Uh, and many of them will only be inconvenienced by treatment for it for a relatively short time. But because it is such a common cancer, it is still a significant number of deaths in the UK and other uh, high-income countries, uh, which will uh, rough, roughly 13% uh, of all the cancer's uh, deaths for men uh, in the UK. So it is not a trivial cause of mortality, but the majority who get it uh, will survive. And with all cancers, the key thing is to kill or treat or get rid of the cancer, but not to cause too much damage to the person whose cancer it is. That is really the twin aims of treatment. Now, the prostate gland itself uh, is a, uh, something which the great majority of people, until they first get problems with it, uh, don't give a second thought to. It's not the kind of thing that's taught about much about, at school. Um, it's normally about the size of a chestnut, uh, its function and, uh, is to produce seminal fluid, and it then has some muscles inside it to provide ej ejaculate. So um, it also does some other important things in the ability to uh, reproduce. It produces a hormone-like substance that ensures that a man's sperm can actually swim swiftly through the, uh, the Niagara Falls that it's trying to get through to get to fertilise an egg. It provides some enzymes which help to make the, uh, both the semen uh, thinner, so making the swimmer swimming easier, so it's sort of water rather than treacle, um, and may well also uh, have an effect on reducing the uh, uh, mucus of uh, women, that's a bit less clear, uh, and it also converts testosterone to a biologically active form. So um, you should all be very thankful for prostates, because if it wasn't for them, none of you would exist. Uh, they do have an important function. And it does, as a fact of biology, get larger in old age. So many men who do not actually get cancer will go on to get what's called benign prostatic hyperplasia. It may not feel terribly benign, because what it can do is cause them to have to pee very frequently and eventually can even sort of block off and uh, cause uh, urinary retention, requiring a rather excitable uh, trip to the, the, the hospital. This isn't, however, a fatal disease, but it can be a, a, an extremely inconvenient and painful one. Now, the symptoms that you might have prostate cancer are unfortunately extremely common, and in particular, they're very common in people who've got the benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is essentially a function of, of ageing, or if you're a man, or uh, if I should be more exact, uh, someone who was born biologically male. Um, these include needing to pee frequently, including at night, uh, needing to rush to the toilet uh, to pee, uh, and difficulty in starting to pee, hesitancy, uh, straining, taking a long time to pee, or very weak flow. The sort of the test for uh, doctors is can you pee over a five-bar gate? Um, uh, and uh, one that most people, I think, would consider uh, was a problem, uh, blood in the urine or semen. Most people who have these symptoms do not have prostate cancer, but if you do have them, this is a situation where you should get yourself checked out by your doctor uh, so that they can uh, make an assessment um, prostate cancer grows very slowly, very slowly. So if you, these symptoms suddenly came on, for example, needing to rush to the toilet to pee in the last couple of weeks, almost certainly that's going, just going to be urinary tract infection, very easy to sort out. This is not something which is uh, something to worry about. So this is a slow-growing cancer. Speed is not here of the essence. But many men who are diagnosed will not have any symptoms at all. And this might be the doctor doing a routine uh, examination, putting a, a, doctor, a finger into the back passage. It might be a routine or a diagnostic uh, test for PSA. And PSA is this uh, substance, this protein, uh, that I talked about earlier that's part of prostate uh, uh, cancer, sorry, prostate normal function. But if the prostate gets bigger, either because of benign prostatic hyperplasia, or because of cancer, it produces more of this, and therefore it can be used as a diagnostic marker. 
but it can also be raised in benign uh, increased prostate. If you've got an infection, which can give many of the same symptoms, if you've had recent uh, sex, uh, and if someone's been on a sort of 100-mile bicycle ride and they've actually just put physical pressure on the prostate, any of these can increase it. So if you get a high rate, rate that doesn't mean you've got prostate cancer. It just means you need to go to next stage. And negative uh, prostate can, uh, PSA is very reassuring. And the next stage is to do a scan. And that may be an MRI scan, where you're put through the kind of uh, large, rather noisy um, uh, tube. Uh, or it might be uh, a transrectal ultrasound, also known as truss. Uh, and this basically means putting a probe into the back passage and looking at the prostate from behind, because there's too much uh, between the outer air and uh, the prostate to get a, a proper view. If something's seen that looks a bit odd or dodgy, the next stage is to go on to get a biopsy. And there are broadly two ways in which a biopsy is done, one of which is through the um, ultrasound scan, and there's a little bit of local anaesthetic and it's done that way, or sometimes it, the approach is through here. I'm not going to go through this in detail because uh, it would put you off your supper, uh, but it's a relatively short, if not terribly pleasant procedure, and this is what will give the diagnosis for the disease for the most great majority of men. So once they've got that um, biopsy, uh, or usually actually multiple biopsies, uh, they'll be looked at under the microscope. And for many men, the answer will be, yeah, there was a slightly odd-looking area, it's fine. This is not cancer. Don't worry. But for a minority, um, this will be cancer. And at this point, uh, we get into the stage uh, of actually having to think about the cancer in the ways that are actually going to be important for treatment. And for all cancers, broadly, uh, the possible exceptions of blood cancers, which I'll be coming on to as my last talk in this year, you look at three separate things, which vary in terms of their importance by which cancer we're talking about. There's the stage of a cancer, and that's the size of the cancer and how far it has spread. So that's the stage. A low number is a good number, uh, and that's for, for prostate cancer generally stage one, two, four. So going up the stages, uh, more advanced disease. The second thing you look at is what's called the grade. And the grade is uh, the cells are looked at under a microscope. And if they look almost identical to the ordinary cells, that's a low grade. And the more abnormal the cells look, the higher the grade. And the grading systems used in prostate cancer is something called the Gleason uh, grading system, um, uh, which is illustrated uh, here. And finally, the thing you look at with all cancers, but in prostate cancer, it's not terribly important. It is important for testicular cancer, which we'll come back to. Uh, you look at the type, because in one organ, you might have several different types of cancer that could arise, coming from different cell lines in that organ. But in the context of a uh, prostate cancer, over 95% of them are what's called an adenocarcinoma. And this means it comes from mucus-secreting glands. So that's where almost all prostate cancer comes from. And for practical purposes, the remainder are rare, and most of them are treated the same way. So I'm not going to go into any of the other ones, just to acknowledge that there are just these other ones uh, out there. So that's the grade. And then there's this, the grade and the type. And then we go on to the, te the, the test to stage the cancer, how far is it spread. Uh, and these will often be an MRI, uh, of the whole body, CT scan, uh, which is a different way of looking at the whole body. Uh, sometimes what's called a PET CT, uh, which is not a kind of nice looking one you take home. It's, does it, it just produces images in a rather different sort of way. And you may have old fashioned plain x-rays of the bones uh, and an ultrasound of the abdomen. And these are all to, to ask the question, has this cancer spread? Because if it has, the treatment is different. So that's the reason for this stage of procedure. So with this, we've now got the grade, the type, uh, and the stage. And there are several staging types, but this is the most commonly used, uh, probably, is something called the TNM, tumour, nodes, and metastases. And the tumour ones, T1, 2, 3, uh, and 4, T1 is something so small, you can only uh, usually see it in the biopsy. You can't actually either see it or feel it. T2 is a bit bigger, but it's all within the prostate. And T3 is still mostly within the prostate, but beginning to get out through the outside uh, edge of it. 
And that's important, but any of these stages, and almost all uh, prostate cancer in the UK is in one of these stages, the, the outlook for ones that are on these stages is good. But if it has spread to the lymph nodes, and if it has spread to other bits of the body, so that's T4, um, or those metastases, uh, at that point, the outlook becomes less, uh, less rosy, although still uh, many people uh, make a full recovery. So this stage four is very important. These are the people who are making up the numbers, who go, or who, some of whom will go on to die. Many will not, but some will. And uh, the most common place that prostate cancer spreads to, and different cancers go to different bits of the body for reasons that are only partially understood. And in the case of prostate cancer, the common places it goes to are the lymph nodes. That's common to many cancers because that's their escape route is via the lymph system. And for prostate cancer, they tend to be in this kind of area. Uh, they can go locally to things like the bladder, but the distant spread, by far the most common, are that they spread to the bones. They can go to other sites, but the bones are the great majority of, can of prostate cancer spread. And these are some x-rays of the prostate uh, cancer that's got into the bones, in this case, of someone's back. And they light up uh, quite strongly. They're what's called um, osteosclerotic, for those who are medics, uh, compared to the normal. So the dark ones are normal. The light ones are the abnormal for this. So that is the majority of spread if people have spread to other organs. I really would like to stress several times, so this is the next time I'm going to stress this, that the outlook for most people is very good. And if it is caught in stages one to three, uh, the outlook is excellent for the majority of people. So stage one is where most cancers are spread. These sides of these bars is what proportion of them are actually picked up in this stage. And this is stage two. This is stage three, and this is stage four. So the great majority are in stages one, two, and three. And if you look at five-year cancer survival, which is a pretty good marker for this is going to be fine, uh, it is essentially 100% survival for stages one or two, essentially, and only uh, slightly down 95% for stage three. This is when it's just begun to break through the, the capsule, uh, but is lower for stage four roughly 50%, 49% at stage four, uh, although it'll be, it's still the great majority of the year. So most people, you can tell them very good news, really, in terms of the staging, because most people are in these earlier stages. It wasn't always the way. This isn't just the biology of this. And if you look over time, survival from prostate cancer has been steadily rising. If we look back uh, to the 1980s, uh, then the survival rate was uh, well less than 30%. And it has steadily gone up now so that the overall survival rate is now above 80%. So this is really quite an, a major improvement. Some of this is because of changes in diagnosis, so this isn't absolutely like-for-like, like, uh, but it's pretty clear that things have improved a lot, and they will carry on improving. There's no sign that this has topped out. So I'm expecting the improvement in treatment of people in stage four to continue for the rest of my professional lifetime. So uh, it's good and it's going to get better. The treatments are also getting less invasive. They have fewer effect, side effects than they used to do. Uh, and in, we've begun to be much, cl much clearer that many men, even though they've got a diagnosis, actually will require no treatment. Just watching. Now, you might reasonably ask, because uh, when we were talking uh, last time round about breast cancer and the time before about cervical cancer in women, uh, I stressed that because outlook was so much better in earlier stages, the obvious thing to do was screening. And screening led to a very significant improvement in symptoms, sorry, an improvement in pickup rate early, and therefore an improvement uh, in outcome. So you might reasonably say, OK, well, why don't we screen for prostate cancer? Prostate cancer is common, uh, and the late stage is dangerous. The early stage is not dangerous, relatively speaking. And therefore, why don't we do screening? And that's a very fair question. The problem we have is the PSA blood test, is, which is the screening test we currently have, is not a very good screening test. And there are very large randomized trials, over 300,000 men randomized. And what they demonstrate really clearly <laughs> is there is zero effect of screening on, on long-term survival. Zero effect. So we, if we want to do screening, we're going to need a better screening test. 
And you might say, well, I'd want a screening test anyway, so can I try and persuade you why that is not the right answer? This is not a cost-saving measure. This is a patient-saving measure. In dark maroon here are the number of people who are picked up uh, with screening, uh, without screening on the left, and with screening on the right. And in red, how many... These are people who died uh, from prostate cancer. And then in red are people who died from any other cause. Broadly the same in either case. But the important thing is how many men without prostate cancer had false alarms and had biopsies, and at this point I would remind you the biopsies are no fun, um, uh, and the answer is all of those people in green would have gone on if there was screening to have a biopsy, which they did not need. Uh, and in blue, some of them would have been diagnosed and treated, but they did not need treatment. So the point about this is screening does pick up stuff, but most of it is false alarms, and that leads men to go down a path which they're not going to thank you for, if the answer is it doesn't have any survival advantage at all. So that's the reason why with current technology we don't do screening. Hopefully we will get better screening in due course, but that is where things are at this point in time. So that's the first thing. Screening uh, isn't terribly helpful. Second thing is, uh, what treatment would you have if you have early disease? And this is a randomised trial um, of quite a very good trial, came out a couple of years ago, uh, which compared three approaches to people with very early, low-grade uh, disease. Uh, prostatectomy, taking the prostate out, I'm going to go through each of these in a minute, radiotherapy, and what we have called active watching, but actually means not doing anything at all, basically. Uh, but it sounds better. Uh, and this is the cancer-free sort of specific survival over that time. And there, there, you're not, if you think you can't see any difference and there is no change, that is because that is exactly what this graph shows. In these people, properly uh, chosen, not, this is not true for everybody, actually doing nothing had exactly the same impact as doing either uh, radiotherapy or doing surgery. So for some people, we can now say with a lot of confidence, you don't need any treatment. We'll monitor you, and if things start to go wrong, we'll intervene. But at this point, we don't see any reason for us to intervene. And of course, what we want to do is get the group of men who can get into this group larger and larger over time as we get more and more secure about who we don't need to treat. But some people do need um, uh, treatment, um, and uh, they will go on to the treatment that they will need. Uh, and um, there is certainly a group that's slightly more advanced than this, where treatment definitely benefits uh, most men who are treated. There is an exception, however. If you've got someone who's very elderly and clearly has a very low chance of surviving 10 years, there's quite a lot of people who the cancer may progress a bit, but it's never going to be the thing which causes them problems or is the thing that ends their lives. And you can say to them, look, yeah, you have got a cancer, it may progress a bit, but you're going to die, because we all die, before your cancer gets to you. So towards the end of life, even if your cancer is progressing, the answer may well be live and let live. And actually, uh, that leaves you uh, without having any of the problems of potential problems of treatment. Uh, some people when they go to a doctor for these difficult decisions, should I treat, what kind of treatment, like just to say, doctor, you just tell me what's best and get on with it. Those kind of people often don't come to Gresham College lectures. Uh, for those uh, who uh, do like uh, to be able to discuss things, there are actually very nice um, uh, online tools you can use, and I'd recommend this one called Predict Prostate, which is NHS uh, branded, which actually you can put in the numbers you've got from your doctor, which tell you your Gleason number and your stage and your age and all those sorts of things, and they will tell you uh, what your outcomes are with different treatments, and they'll tell you what the side effects are, in probabilistic terms. Of course, no one knows what's going to happen to them personally, but in broad terms, and that allows you to have an in, a sort of in, in, informed discussion with the doctor uh, and the medical team when you go to see them. So uh, for those of you who would like, I, I, I do think this is often quite uh, useful. So now, uh, what kind of treatment uh, will you go on to if the answer is active treatment is the right thing to do? And I'm going to go through the treatment types. Um, uh, the first, uh, the most basic in a sense, but uh, a very important one, is uh, surgery, prostatectomy. Prostatectomy means taking the prostate out. It's generally considered if the prostate, uh, if the cancer was within the prostate, so you take the prostate out, if, there's, if the cancer's only in the prostate, then cancer's gone. Uh, and particularly in fast-growing cancers and younger men tend to be recommended uh, surgery. Uh, it's called radical prostatectomy. Uh, that just means it takes out the whole thing uh, and a couple of other things. Uh, there's a 
newer techniques, something called nerve sparing, which reduces the risk of uh, longer-term problems, particularly uh, with uh, erectile uh, problems. And there are broadly three ways it can be done. Old-fashioned, open, you open the thing up as you'd see on most of the ER or other medical programs. Laparoscopic, which uh, is uh, also known as keyhole, where it's done through a small hole with two or three things. And uh, robot-assisted. So this is the surgeon, and this is where the patient would be, in robot-assisted. Now, to be clear, there's no terribly good evidence that any of these is better than the other, overwhelmingly, and it tends to depend on a number of local factors, including are people used to it. If someone who's very good at this tries this, your outcome may not be as good and vice versa. So uh, those kind of things need to be taken into account. And there are risks to surgery, uh, but to be clear, this is a minority of people in the long term. Obviously, this is a major operation. Uh, Like all operations, uh, there are short-term issues. The main ones are incontinence, uh, minority, erectile dysfunction, also a minority, uh, and in the shorter term, uh, infection. I'll come on to the proportions in a minute. Um, There is another form of surgery some people may need not for cure, but for treatment alleviation. And that's something which is used for benign prostate disease sometimes, and it's called a transurethral resection of prostate. It's a bit of a mouthful. Basically, it means there's a blockage here from your bladder outwards, so people can't pee. So people basically drill a hole through here using a variety of measures. It may be physical, it may be lasers, uh, and that allows the urine to flow more easily. So this is a symptom control treatment. It's not a, it's not a treatment of the disease. So that's surgery. Uh, Then uh, the next uh, form is radiotherapy. Radiotherapy is a lot uh, older than a lot of people think. It's over 100 years old. uh, And it may be used to treat uh, cancer that's confined to the prostate in a very similar way to the way that um, uh, surgery is. So you're just going to radiate the prostate. Or it may be that it's shone at cancer that has spread, either to cure it or to alleviate symptoms. So it can be used in either of those situations. The thing which is improving the whole time uh, is that um, the radiotherapy needs to be delivered at a high amount to the cancer. What you're trying to avoid is getting very much cancer, uh, much radiotherapy in all the places where the cancer isn't. And as time goes by, the ability to get very accurate uh, amounts of radiation just where the cancer is and no no other are getting greater and greater and greater. And I'll talk in, in, in the advances section in a minute about probably the latest advances in this. Recent advances include fewer number of cancer sessions, which is easier for people, uh, and higher doses during those with uh, good outcomes. And then some men uh, will have, because it's more appropriate for them, the radiation uh, not given by an external beam where you shine a beam through them from multiple angles, but rather they have the radiation put into them as implants on a temporary basis. And this can lead to more localised radiation. So this is called brachytherapy. Uh, it's more, less scatter to other tissues. Uh, it's a little bit more uncomfortable at the time you have it. So these are the trade-offs that people need to discuss with their doctor. And it may be combined with external uh, radiotherapy as well. Uh, Radiation therapy is often thought of by people as really, really severe. Actually, very large numbers of people, other than a very short period, uh, have pretty good uh, tolerance of radiotherapy. Uh, Most people are very tired after radiotherapy. Not quite clear why, but they definitely are. May have diarrhoea because it's uh, inflaming or causing turnover in the bits of the bowel which the, the beam goes through. They often may have temporary urinary frequency or obstruction because there's inflammation there and they may lose their pubic hair, but it then cut grows back, although it may grow back in a slightly different way. Um, and then there's some long-term ones. This is a minority, quite a small minority, uh, having problems with urinary frequency or flow reduction or incontinence, uh, diarrhoea, pretty rare, uh, and erectile dysfunction. So those are, uh, you know, this is clear, to be clear, radiotherapy is not a breeze, but most people tolerate it a lot better than they think. And if you look at this, is to give some idea of the side, side effects people are going to get. Surgery in red, radiotherapy in yellow, and the watchful weight group, uh, where we're just seeing how things go, uh, in blue. And as you can see, uh, this is on the left here, what we have is urinary incontinence. And this is percentages. And this is 33%. So for all of these, 
it's a lot less than a third. In uh, slightly higher in surgery, and there's a little bit of a peak which can often get better over time. Uh, if you're looking about sexual quality of life, and that's a rather subjective measure, um, uh, what you see is there is a difference between them, but again, uh, it's actually over time gets pretty close to uh, where people are in terms of uh, normal, people who have not actually been treated at all, people who are in blue. And the final way in which radiation can be used is if the, if the cancer has got into the bones, people may be given a drink, or uh, more commonly actually a, uh, uh, an injection, with a ra weekly radioactive uh, um, uh, liquid, uh, and that's um, something which actually is taken up into the bones, rather like calcium, and it's taken up in areas where the bone is turning over very fast, and that's where the cancer will be, the bone will be turning over very fast. So it's taken up in, let's say, the ribs, if that's where they are, and it concentrates in areas of bone damage, and it kills the cells locally. So this is a way of actually treating the metastases that may be in the bones. The next big area of improvement is hormone therapy for prostate cancer. So most prostate cancer is driven by testosterone. It is what's called hormone dependent. If you stop the testosterone, the cancer stops, uh, stops growing and the cancer cells may well die. So the hormone can actually be uh, very uh, useful. And there are broadly two situations where we give hormone treatment. And the idea of hormone treatment is it basically switches off the testosterone drive. The first uh, indication uh, is as a temporary treatment to help with the immediate treatment you have at the beginning, particularly for radiotherapy. It shrinks down the tumour, makes it more in one place, means you can actually concentrate the radiotherapy more carefully. Or in people who've got more advanced cancer or a cancer that has recurred, people can be given stuff that switches off their, their testosterone uh, and actually it then, uh, that's treatment lifelong. And they have this, the cancer spread, they're living with the cancer, but the uh, hormone drive has gone and therefore uh, the cancer remains quiet. It may become less effective over a number of years, rather inelegantly termed castration resistant, uh, but uh, it may not. Uh, and this is the way it uh, works. I'm not going to read this out. This is mainly for people who've just done GCSE and want to understand how the uh, hormones fit into this. There are broadly two things that you have, um, uh, the kinds of drugs which switch off the testosterone, um, and then you have ones which actually block the uh, testosterone that's in the system, and they are particularly tend to be used uh, in the hormone surge, uh, to prevent a hormone surge early in treatment. So those are the two types. So what kind of percentages of people will go on to have these different treatments? Um, Active watching, I haven't I'm put in this quite a localised lot, but the people who need to go on to have treatment, this is, this, kind of, this is the revealed preference in terms of what happens. Stage 1 disease, uh, surgery around 11%, radiotherapy around 22%, but that leaves quite a lot of people who don't have either of those. Uh, and you can see the numbers going through, step right through to stage 4. And as you can see, the big difference is in stage 3, a lot more radiotherapy, and in stage four, basically, surgery ceases to be useful because the cancers now escape the prostate. Removing the prostate is not going to uh, get rid of it. But I want to also point out, most people who are told they have a cancer diagnosis think they're going to have chemotherapy. And in some cancers, that's true, but not for prostate cancer. Except in stage four disease, a very small minority of people will go on to have chemotherapy, which is what a lot of people dread. Um, cancer, uh, chemotherapy can be used, and the way chemotherapy use, is used in all cancers is very straightforward. Uh, it kills cells that are dividing, and that includes normal cells and cells which are cancerous, but cancer cells uh, divide lots more, so it kills many more of them. Uh, and uh, the more rapidly dividing it is, the better. That's the way uh, they work. Uh, for people who've got um, uh, ca a cancer that does require treatment with chemotherapy, which is a minority even in advanced disease, uh, the main drugs we use, and I'm not going to go read uh, all of this out, uh, you can all read, uh, are these two here, uh, doxycycline and carbotaxel. Uh, these are both drugs which were originally derived from the bark of the Pacific yew. 
A lot of people think herbs are nice, gentle things. It is, you know, many of the chemotherapy drugs we have come out of herbal drugs. But I'm not going to concentrate on chemotherapy because it's really pretty rare. Uh, finally, in terms of treatment, novel therapies. These are mainly still in trials, but they are at the advanced stage of trials, most of them, so several of them will come into, uh, uh, into play for particular people. Uh, one is called high-intensity focal ultrasound, and this kills the cancer cells by heating them. So this is a different approach uh, to radiotherapy. Uh, opposite end of the temperature spectrum, cryotherapy. This is freezing the cancer cells, and this also kills them. Uh, a new approach to radiotherapy is something called proton beam therapy, and this is a way of more accurately or more localised uh, radiotherapy uh, under certain circumstances. So this is going back to the idea the less uh, it affects normal tissues, the better. And then in the first, uh, the first um, talk I gave in this series, I talked a lot about immunotherapy, very important in many cancers, but actually still doesn't have a major role in prostate cancer. That may change over time, but at this point in time, that's true. But the single biggest advance we could have, given that most cancers don't progress, would be able to say reliably to someone who's got prostate cancer, this one will progress and this one won't, so that people do not need treatment unless they actually have the progressing sort. So this will be one of the most important things we can do, and that will probably be based largely on genotyping. A little bit about the risk factors for prostate cancer. Um, the thing about prostate cancer, and this is also true for testicular cancer, and in sharp contrast to other cancers I'm going to talk about uh, later, is that there are almost no modifiable risk factors. So basically, this is a combination of your genes and your fate. Uh, but I'm going to make it a bit more scientific than that. But this is, not, this is not something where you can look back on your life and say, if only I had not XXX, uh, that this is uh, not really related to particular activities. There is an, an inverse relationship with deprivation. This is different from most cancers. So generally speaking, if you come from a poorer part of the country, you're less likely to have prostate cancer. Uh, there is uh, some genetic and familial um, uh, ca uh, cancer. Um, this may explain it's currently thought 5 to 9%, maybe more than that. There's definitely a, um, an ethnic difference. People of African heritage, Afro-Caribbean heritage, have a significantly higher cancer, prostate cancer rate, age for age, than white uh, men, who in turn have a higher rate than people of Asian heritage. So there's quite big racial differences. And a gene that we talked about quite a lot in the context of breast cancer, something called BRCA2, is associated with a very significantly increased risk in men. This is a bad gene. And it's also higher in another syndrome I'll talk about when we talk about uh, uh, bowel cancer, something called Lynch, Lynch syndrome. So those are, those are the particular uh, uh, ones. If you look at fam family history, um, if uh, your father... Uh, had uh, prostate cancer, you as a man are roughly twice as likely to have cancer, cancer uh, than if uh, you, that wasn't the case, at least for early cancer. If it was a brother, uh, it's around three times, and if uh, more than two, two or more relatives, nearly four times. So there is clearly a familial clustering on this, and this is particularly true for early prostate cancer. It's less true once people get into their 80s and 90s. And then if you look at the new genome uh, studies, these have identified over 100 common gene variants, uh, which account for roughly a third of excess familial prostate cancer risk. So there clearly is a complex interaction between genes uh, and environment. Obesity, which is a risk for some cancers, is not a risk for prostate cancer, but does seem to be associated with more advanced cancer for reasons that aren't really fully uh, understood. And then there are some associated diseases which are associated with a lower risk, including diabetes and HIV and Parkinson's disease. So that's my uh, relatively long summary on prostate, but I've concentrated on that because it is such a common uh, cancer. I'm now going to talk at much shorter uh, length about testicular cancer. It's a rare disease of younger men. 98% uh, of people currently, and this will no doubt go up over time, but there's not much further for it to go, will survive 10 or more years. So this is really, really good survival rates. Um, around uh, just over 2,000 cases a year in the UK, less than 100 deaths. 
So it's a fairly uncommon cancer. It's an incredibly uncommon cause of dying uh, with cancer. Um, it makes up about 1% of the cancers in men, so it's much less uh, important. Peak incidence is in the 30s. So people start having it in their teens, and it's incredibly rare for people to have it in their 60s. So people, basically men, this is the cheery news, move from their risk of having testicular cancer to their risk of moving, having <laughs> prostate cancer with only very small overlap. Um, it's more common in white men, uh, and it, like prostate cancer, appears to be more associated with higher socioeconomic status, but only slightly. Um, it's usually diagnosed at an early stage. Men in the bath or shower or their partners find a lump and think, I don't like the look of that, and they go to their doctor. It's very straightforward. Uh, and survival has improved from, it, was, even, it started off pretty good, uh, around about 70% in the 1970s, up to, as I say, 98% now. And largely that is because almost everyone is diagnosed in early stages. The diagnosis is usually people see the lump and then people have an ultrasound and some blood tests. Uh, the ultrasound shows whether there's, the lump is solid or fluid or what it looks like. And these are the blood tests they may have, some combination of these bloods. So I'm going to read them out. Alpha fetoprotein is the only one I can read out. Uh, HCG and LDH as these are normally known. And if the combination of the ultrasound and the blood tests makes people think it is cancer, it is not a good idea to do biopsies because that can spread the cancer. So people move immediately to treatment, which is to remove the offending testes. There is no intermediate step. So you move from the ultrasound to the surgery. And the mainstay of treatment is orchidectomy. Now this, if you're a young man, this obviously comes as a bit of a blow. But... It is important to say that if you remove one testis with early cancer, firstly, you're going to get a cure, virtually 100% cure, and secondly, men can have a completely normal life, including professional, romantic, and sexual life, and have children in very, very large uh, proportion of cases. And I'm going to use as my uh, literal poster boy for this Bobby Moore, uh, who uh, captained England to their last... I stress that word, uh, football World Cup victory in 1966. He was diagnosed as testicular cancer in 19, uh, 1964 and treated for it in that year. Uh, he had children in 1965 and 1968. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, uh, he uh, went on to footballing uh, history in 1966. He died in 1993 of a completely unrelated cancer. So this, this outlook, you can reassure someone after the immediate psychological blow uh, can be good, and you might go on uh, to be the next person to captain the World Cup. Um, in terms of stage, very similar to uh, prostate cancer. Uh, low stages confined to the testis. Higher stages, uh, they, move on, uh, they, they move further uh, in the blood uh, uh, to other places. Uh, and for testis, uh, it's less commonly the bone, more commonly the lungs or the liver you tend to get. So that's the staging. I won't go through that in any detail. Um, Importantly in this cancer, however, unlike prostate, is the type of cancer you have. And these are broadly divided into what's called a seminoma and then a group of them which are called non-seminoma. And the treatment for these is different. They are differently sensitive to different things. So a seminoma is something, as the name implies, that arise from the seminiferous tubules where sper spermatozoa are created. This is what a normal one looks like. Um, and uh, they're usually diagnosed um, aged 15 to 35, slightly older than other germ tumours. And then the non-seminomas, slightly different age group, and they have a number of different subtypes, which I'm not going to go through because they're not relevant to treatment, but just uh, to be aware. Treatment of these slightly more complicated. Uh, typical treatments. Stage one, it's, in the, it's just in the testis, uh, fairly localised, usually just surgery. Both types, doesn't matter. It's usually curative. Only going to have chemotherapy if there's a high risk of it coming back. Stage two depends on the type. If there's a seminoma, you might have radiotherapy, you might have chemotherapy, but if it's a non-seminoma, you will have chemotherapy. And then the later stages, chemotherapy for both, but the chemotherapies may be different depending on the type. So the type here is quite important. And what I've shown here in the picture, incidentally, when people have the testis removed, they'll then have, be, have one replaced by something that looks and feels from the outside just like the, the real thing. Uh, this is an X-ray of it. Or a CT, rather accurately. Um, 
For those who do need radiotherapy, it'll be usually uh, given either in, on one side uh, or in the middle, um, uh, and uh, they will have, it's mainly to prevent spread to the lymph glands, is radiotherapy. And many of these are very radiosensitive, meaning they are very quickly killed by radiation. Uh, three to four weeks of treatment, sometimes even shorter than that, so this is really quite a short period of radiotherapy. Uh, side effects very similar to the ones we've talked about uh, elsewhere. There may be temporary damage to the sperm. So most men are recommended not to father a child in the immediate year following treatment, if they've had to have radiotherapy, just to prevent a situation where a genetically uh, mutated sperm goes on to win the race to the egg. And when people have chemotherapy, again, I'm not going to go through the details. I'm putting up these names just so someone who's had the diagnosis recognises them when they're talking to their medical team. Uh, but I would like to uh, make a couple of comments on just the origins of some of these. Uh, the most common combination is uh, this one here, bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin. Uh, all of them are old. So the uh, youngest of these is 1966. Some of them are, old, uh, are earlier. So this is not cutting-edge medicine in the uh, in breakthrough sense. Come back to how it's moved on. And this one, the bleomycin, comes from a bacteria. Uh, etoposide was originally came out of the, the root, or kind of a root, of the wild mandrake. And anyone who's watched either Harry Potter or Red Herbals will be aware of the fact this is meant to have huge healing powers. And cisplatin was discovered in, right in 1845, so this is an old one, and was found accidentally to have cancer-fighting properties when someone decided to put in a platinum electrode to electrocute some bacteria and found that actually caused uh, death of cells. There are other drugs used, but these will be the most common ones. And chemotherapy, the drugs haven't improved, but the treatment regimes have. And this is something, literally, that I picked off the news uh, from uh, this month, uh, about two weeks ago, and it showed that actually, if you give, uh, it looks as if if you give one cycle of treatment, that's usually just as good as two cycles. So you're halving the amount of treatment, halving the amount of side effects, same outcome for the men involved. So these kind of improvements will continue. And really for testicular cancer, now that the treatment outcomes are so good, our aim is not to improve cure, particularly, except in the very last stages, it's actually to reduce the side effects of treatment still further, particularly of radiotherapy and chemotherapy. In terms of risk factors for testicular cancer, uh, only one of them really uh, is modifiable. Uh, all men um, have their test, they may not remember this, but their testis is descended from their abdomen down through a, a tube and then gradually uh, uh, down at different points of their development. And if the, if the testicle does not, has not descended by puberty, that is a risk factor for testicular cancer. And therefore, it has to be surgically corrected and taken down in, uh, to the, to the uh, scrotal sac. There is definitely a family uh, tendency. If the father had a, uh, testicular cancer, it's about four times the risk. And if a brother did, around eight times the risk. But remember, this is eight times the risk of a very, very, very small risk. So it's still not something which you should sort of be sweating at night every, every night worrying about. There is, appears to be a bit of an association with mumps or colitis. This is when you have mumps and then the testicle gets uh, inflamed immediately after mumps. It's quite a common side effect of mumps if you have it in older life. Yet another reason why getting a vaccination for MMR is a very good idea. Um, and if you've had pre previous testicular cancer, an, ing an inguinal hernia, particularly young, uh, and white, tall males, like myself, are at particularly high risk. But again, with the exception of this one here, they're not modifiable. This is just the way it is. Finally, before I summarise, I'm going to, in one slide, just talk about one disease which has fortunately disappeared completely. And the reason that I'm going to talk about it is because it is an absolutely classic occupational disease. So this is uh, something called Pott's degree disease of the scrotum, illustrated rather elegantly here. And the risk factor, 100% of the cases, basically, was being a child chimney sweep. And I think uh, if you don't know British uh, early industrial history, I'll just give you a feel for this. Boys as young as four were sent up chimneys uh, to clean them up. 
it was considered to be more economic uh, than doing it by uh, brushes and other methods. Um, they were treated, here is Sir Percival Pott who described the disease, they were treated with great brutality. And remember, if you, if you say treated with great brutality in that age, you really mean it. Uh, thrust up na na narrow and sometimes hot chimneys, bruised, burned, suffocated. Um, if they moved too slowly, people prodded their feet with, uh, with, with pointed sticks to make, it, make them go up the chimney quicker. The whole thing was uh, pretty awful. Uh, and then when they had just about got big enough, they were no longer sent up the chimney, they would go on to get this horrible disease. So this disease has now gone. It's the first occupational cancer, so a cancer that only occurs in an occupation. We will be talking about uh, some other important ones next, uh, week, next time uh, I, I talk to you uh, when we're talking about diseases of the lung. Um, it led in part, or at least it was associated in part, with the Chimney Sweepers Act of 1788. And that made the very, very liberal advance that children must be eight uh, and should have parental consent. But in reality, that wasn't actually uh, enforced, and there was no very uh, effective act until uh, after 1875, probably put in, uh, into the public domain by a rather sentimental and slightly odd book called The Water Babies, but it made a big impact on people and made them realise this was an issue. I will comment, without uh, drawing too many parallels, that throughout the history of the debate about what to do about child uh, chimney sweeps, uh, there was a very strong concern not to interfere with trade. And that was the main reason why people uh, constantly pushed back on any kind of uh, tightening of and increasing the age of the chimney sweeps. And I have to say I sometimes see parallels, fortunately not quite as severe, uh, in some debates in some countries today. So here's my summary. Uh, prostate and testicular cancer. Prostate cancer, a very common disease of older men. The great majority of people with it will not die, and many of them will, in fact, not even be aware it's there at all. They'll die of unrelated causes. It's possible to live with it as a chronic condition if it can't be removed or completely treated when it first appears. Uh, and hormone treatment uh, is a very important part of treatment uh, for uh, many men if it's a slightly more advanced form. Testicular cancer, an uncommon uh, disease of younger men, and I put it in largely because uh, young people don't expect to get cancer. This is one which does happen at that age. Uh, often cured with surgery, just diagnosis, straight to surgery, that's it. Uh, and very good outcomes normally, 98%. And finally, I'm not, I haven't gone into any detail, but I'm just going to mention this for completeness. Uh, penile cancer even rarer than testicular, roughly 600 cases a year. And this will get even rarer because the HPV vaccine, which we talked about in the first lecture of this series, aimed at uh, girls and young women, also uh, will protect against this in a very large proportion of the cases. A lot of them are driven by the HPV virus, and the vaccine will therefore prevent it. And this is being rolled out in boys this year. Thank you very much. <laughs>